Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Versatility is common among creative thinkers. Later this hour, we'll hear about Atlanta opera singers equally comfortable performing other styles of music. Their upcoming Crossroads Variety Show is based on an idea of going from opera to Opry. First, an author with a PhD in English Romantic Poetry who went from teaching university literature to becoming a writer of food science and now leads us through the world of smells. Harold McGee is renowned for his writing on the science of food and cooking. His first book on food and cooking has been described as the single best source book for anyone who has even the faintest interest in food. McGee's achievements include a James Beard Award, Bon Appetit Food Writer of the Year, and he has been listed among the Time 100, an annual list of the world's most influential people. Harold McGee's new book is Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. Harold McGee, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. I read that you spent 10 years working on Nosedive, and your research is evident in the scope of the book. Why did you want to write about smells? <laughs> Good question. Well, for 30 or 40 years now, I've been writing mostly about food and drink and the science of cooking. To me, the most interesting thing about food and cooking is um, flavor, the sensory experience that makes it such a pleasure to eat and drink. And so I was intending to write a book about flavor. Flavor consists of uh, taste on the tongue and smell in the nose. And the, the more I learned about smell, the more fascinated I got and the more I wondered about not just the smells of food and drink, but the smells of the world around me. And so I ended up taking a detour that lasted 10 years and uh, uh, wrote about the, the smells of everything in the world that I could think of. And in the cosmos, I mean, not just our world. That's right. I started out my life very interested in astronomy and actually studied it for a few years. So when I began to think about the smells of the world, eventually it occurred to me to ask the question, uh, when was it in the development of the cosmos that things that we would recognize uh, on Earth today began to be created in the cosmos at large? And so I found that radio astronomers were able to detect the presence of very particular molecules billions and billions of light years away and they take a census every couple of years they list the molecules that have been found in outer space to date they've found about 200 and among them are the molecules that to us would smell like 
eggs mm -hmm. and vinegar and even fruits. Hmm. You describe smells as an invisible nimbus of flying molecules. How do they enter our sensory system? Well, for something to have a smell, because of course we detect smells in the air, it has to be a tiny particle of the things around us, molecules, individual molecules that escape those things and fly through the air where we can breathe them in. And once we breathe them in and they get up into the upper reaches of our nose, we have receptors up there to let us know that we have detected the presence of these molecules. So those receptors will trigger a signal that then goes into our brain and our brain tries to make sense of the information that it's getting and then presents us with a, a perception of the smell of that particular thing. And how is our sense of smell a bridge between our experience of foods and our experience of the larger world? Well, it's because when we encounter the world around us and when we breathe, which we have to do a number of times a minute, we're taking in air from the world around us. And when we do that, if we're breathing through our nose, we get an indication of the, the smells and the things around us. When we're eating, we have food in our mouth and we're actually detecting its smells when we breathe out, when we exhale. The air passes from our lungs through our mouth and then through our nose and out into the outside. So breathing in, we get the smells of the world around us. Breathing out, we get the smells of the food in our mouths. Hmm. Now, I love when you write that you became a smell explorer and, and you encourage readers to become smell explorers. What made you decide to go beyond the smells associated with food? Well, what really got me interested in the smells of the rest of the world were those moments when I was eating and thinking about smells, thinking about flavors, those moments when uh, particular foods seem to echo other things, other, other foods, and even other things that aren't edible. So Parmesan cheese, for example, is old cow's milk, a year or two old, been sitting around maturing. It can sometimes have the smell of a ripe pineapple. So what does an old vat of cow's milk have in common with a tropical fruit? <laughs> and then some wines are often said to smell like uh, or have an aroma reminiscent of a sweaty saddle oh. <laughs> or the soil or the ocean or flowers. None of these things are things that we would want to put in our mouths, but they're somehow part of the experience of food and drink. So that's what got me to pay attention, not just to the, the aromas of food and drink, but to the smells of the rest of the world that they echo. You even invented a word for the world of smells. Please, Harold McGee, tell us what you have added to our language. <laughs> Well, uh, I wanted a word to describe the world of smells, the universe of smells, uh, all the possibilities that are out there for us to explore. And so I came up with the word osmocosm. Osme is uh, from a Greek root meaning to smell, and cosm, of course, the, the cosmos. And I really like the, the kind of internal rhyme there, osmocosm. So that's what I call the world of smells. Oh, and clearly you have that sensory gift with the ear as well, because osmocosm just has a lilt to it. I'm intrigued hearing you talk about your interest in astronomy initially. I read that your background is in literature, your doctoral thesis was on the English romantic poet John Keats. For many years, you wrote about the science of food, but this book is much more science. How much chemistry have you studied? <laughs> 
Well, it's true that I started out life studying astronomy, and then I switched gears and directions and studied literature. But that initial foray into science stayed with me, and I've, I've always been interested in it. And it does turn out that smell is basically a matter of chemistry. It's about particular molecules. And there are families of molecules that help us kind of make sense of the tremendous variety that are out there. So I actually initially thought it would be kind of a daunting task to learn about these molecules that have nothing to do with food and drink necessarily. But I ended up loving it and tried to convey that sense of adventure and discovery by including in the book drawings of the molecules, which I think helps them kind of stick and gives them a, a kind of personality. <laughs> Indeed. And, and physics, going back to chapter one, uh, the first chapter deals with the Big Bang. How does that relate to our sense of smell? Well, the, the Big Bang itself doesn't really relate to our sense of smell, but that's that was the beginning of the world of matter and energy that has ended up creating the world that we live in. And I, I always like to trace things back to their origins to, uh, to understand where things come from. And so that, of course, is where everything came from. So that's why I started with the Big Bang. But then I moved pretty quickly to the spaces between stars, which is where many of these early molecules uh, get formed and where the first molecules with smells that we could appreciate were developed. Hmm. I love your recipe for the universe. Mix matter and energy and cook. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, it, it, it really does seem to me that the analogy is a very good one. Because, for example, if you take sugar, which is, you know, white crystals with no smell whatsoever, and just one taste, which is to say sweetness, put that in a pot the way you would maybe put matter and energy together in a pot at the beginning of the universe, put that sugar in a pot, just turn on the heat and add energy and weight. And what happens is that odorless, single-flavored crystal turns into a brown liquid, which we call caramel, which has a variety of different tastes, actually, sweet and sour and bitter, and then this wonderful aroma that, uh, that fills the kitchen. So I think the, the analogy between the creation of the universe and the creation of flavor is a, is a good one. I think it's wonderful. Would you explain how smells are compared to a musical chord? Yes, it, it turns out, you know, when we think, for example, of the smell of caramel, we think that it's a unitary thing, that there must be molecules of caramel that we're smelling. But in fact, smells are much more like chords in music. They're made up of individual notes, the individual molecules that combine in our brain, actually, are the flavor, smell, these are perceptions that are created in our brains from these composite sensations. So smell seems to be just a note, but in fact, it's a complex chord made up of many different notes. So those are the notes that we're reading about on wine labels or in reviews. And I guess it turns into a melody, if you will, when you start building on the individual notes and the chords become multiple. That's right. And uh, something that we tend not to think so much about when it comes to flavors but in fact, as, uh, as true there as in music, is that flavors have lifetimes. They're not just one instant uh, snapshot. They actually evolve over time as we savor something. And in the case of wines, for example, many of those individual notes that wine critics will often detect in wines are not things that you get all at once. But if you sip and pay attention and 
and then swallow and see what's left in your mouth, what, what aromas are left, and then take a second sip, and then another one maybe 20 minutes later. The flavor evolves, and that's, for me, one of the great pleasures of uh, eating and drinking is not so much uh, thinking of foods and drinks as having one single flavor, but enjoying how those flavors develop over time and uh, during the course of a meal. Hmm. The complexity requires patience to fully appreciate. Yes, exactly. Mixed metaphor came to mind, but I think cross-sensory is a better way to understand a phrase you use in this book. Would you please explain listening to smells? Yes, that's a, a wonderful term that I learned when I went to Japan about a decade ago uh, in order to learn about incense. And there's a practice a little bit like the tea ceremony in Japan. There's a, an incense ceremony where you light a little bit of incense wood and then you pay very close attention to it and learn to distinguish its aroma from the aroma of related incense woods. And the best English translation for the Japanese term for this is listening to incense, <laughs> which when I first heard that made no sense whatsoever, except that when I began to think about it, it's true. When we talk about sound and music as uh, a great example, you can hear something which is just kind of passive and accidental, or you can listen to it, which means that you're paying attention and you're, you're getting much more out of it than just the fact that it's there. And so I really like that idea and that term, listening to smells, not just registering the fact that they're there, but paying attention to them and thinking about them, noticing what emotions they might arouse, or memories, and just making them a more integral part of life. Mm. I'm glad you brought up memory. Before I began reading Nosedive, I thought about a very personal association with smell. My mother passed away 10 years ago, and I still have a bottle of fragrance she often wore which I will occasionally sniff. And the connection to her is profound. Will you talk about how smell evokes memory and emotion? Well, it turns out that uh, the sense of smell compared to our other senses is much more directly connected to the emotional part of our brain, the part of our brain that responds not with thoughts, but with feelings. So it turns out that when we smell something that is somehow connected with important emotional experiences in our past, it's very good at evoking those moments in the past and the people and situations associated with them. And psychologists have actually studied this and they call it olfactory comfort. People will actually seek out things in the world that remind them of those comforting relationships and experiences and situations. And that'll often take the form, for example, if a couple is separated, that uh, one member of that couple will open the, the dresser drawer and take out an item of clothing and just inhale through it to try and get the presence of that missing partner back into their life momentarily. Harold McGee, author of the new book, Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on W-A-B-E. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 
Let's return to my conversation with author Harold McGee. His new book is Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. You provide smell tables in each chapter. Please talk about the structure of the book. Well, I subtitled the book A Field Guide to the World's Smells. And I really did have in mind a burger's guide or a guide to butterflies, books that help you identify what it is that you're experiencing, what you're seeing or hearing. So I wanted to do that kind of thing for smells. Now, of course, smells are invisible. (laughs) So I I couldn't have uh, photographs to help you identify things. But what I could do is provide tables that give you the components of a given smell and then the molecules that are responsible for those component smells. And I included the molecules not to say that science is the most important thing about this, but rather to indicate that uh, unlike the tasting notes of a, a wine critic, for example, the component smells are objective. These are molecules and component smells that have been found by chemists to be present in these many different materials in the world. And so if you're curious about knowing exactly why it is that there's a particular note, you can see which molecule is responsible, and then the text will often explain what those molecules are doing there. (laughs) You take us through familiar smells, such as freshly cut grass, which is so appealing to many of us who enjoy walking outdoors, the aroma of freshly baked bread, coffee, and of course, delicious chocolate. You write about plant smells, animals, other humans, and ourselves. Have you had any feedback about the range of your research into smells that one wouldn't think you would have delved into? (laughs) Yes. Well, people are surprised to find the, the smells of the human body covered in as much detail as the smells of flowers and uh, and chocolate and coffee. Yeah, I was uh, wondering about you having to sniff dirty laundry or, you know, just trying to picture you doing this, Harold. Well, and of course, uh, when I was writing the book, I, I was going and sniffing actively at things that are not so nice. But the reason I included them in the book was because nice or not so nice, these are things that we encounter all the time. And we may not like encountering them, but I think even so, it's interesting to know what they're doing there. Why do these things smell the way they do? And in some cases, knowing why they smell the way they do helps you uh, ameliorate (laughs) those smells. So, for example, I think um, most of us have encountered the, the kind of sour, unpleasant smell of a sponge in the kitchen that's been sitting on the counter for a few weeks and never had a chance to completely dry out. And so it turns out that microbes are living inside in all those little nooks and crannies and generating these very unpleasant molecules, which we pick up because our nose is there to inform us about what's around us and what's good and what's not so good. And it turns out that knowing which molecules are responsible for that sour smell gives you a pretty clear idea of how to deal with those smells, how to make them go away. And so knowing what's there, pleasant or unpleasant, can make our lives both more interesting, but also more pleasant. Ah, for the greater good. I remember once watching a program where the person narrating was speaking about how dogs gather information from what other dogs leave on the ground and just how much information they decode from that. And he said something about if they could speak, dogs would probably say, why are you not more 
attuned to this and why don't you appreciate it? Is this something we ought to take note from dogs? Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think there are very good reasons that we're not interested in the same things that they're interested in. (laughs) Their noses are right down there on the ground, and so they're picking up on all kinds of things that uh, we, from several feet above, are just not going to experience. On the other hand, we can really enjoy the nuances in a you know, a particular bar of chocolate or uh, coffee from Ethiopia, uh, of course, wines and, and distilled drinks, which have uh, so much connoisseurship surrounding them. Dogs would not do a very good job making those kinds of distinctions. So we, we humans, when we care about something, can detect a lot and analyze and get great pleasure out of the sense of smell. And my idea in writing the book was just to encourage all of us to, uh, to savor the other things in the world as much as we do chocolates and coffees and, and wines. How have technology and commerce manipulated our sense of smell or our expectations of smell? So the industry writ large uh, has figured out how to synthesize the molecules of smell in vast quantities by the ton very, very cheaply. And so instead of, uh, for example, a, a perfume being very expensive because the ingredients are these rare materials from different parts of the world, industrial chemists have figured out how to make the, the molecules that provide most of the, the smells of these things, and then they can make perfumes very, very cheaply. And that's kind of spilled over into our everyday lives where we have air fresheners of all kinds to spray around our house or to add to our furniture polish or to spray in our cars. So the osmocosm that we wander through every day is often impoverished, first of all, by getting rid of lots of smells uh, and then by covering over what smells are there with these um, kind of industrial simplifications or cartoons of what smells really are. In the preface to this book, you explain how your first taste of grouse, a game bird, was transformative. And that experience led you down this 10-year journey through the science and study of smells. The concluding chapter is titled my second grouse. How has this decade of exploration influenced your sensory experience of life? Taking 10 years of paying close attention to smells that that I'd never paid attention to before has turned me into, I think, a smell explorer forever. (laughs) Because I think once you get in the habit of noticing these things and noticing the connections, it just becomes another aspect that enriches your life. You know, it's it's a bit like learning about uh, classical music or about jazz or about painting. Uh, No matter where you are, you take that with you. And when there's a chance to appreciate Uh, a snatch of music or uh, a painting or a particular smell, you do stop and notice and and it registers. Harold McGee, this has been fascinating and this must be the definitive book on smells. Congratulations on this volume and thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much, Lois. It's been a great pleasure. Author Harold McGee. His new book is Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last month, I spoke with the baritones Reggie Smith and Michael Mays about the Atlanta Opera's productions of Pagliacci and the Kaiser of Atlantis. This weekend, 
the final performances of those operas will take place under the big tent on the campus of Oglethorpe University. There will also be a special non-classical concert on Sunday called Crossroads, a variety show. Michael Mays, you've appeared several times with the Atlanta Opera, including in Sweeney Todd as the Demon Barber, as Joseph de Rocher in Dead Man Walking. You probably ain't never been to Vegas. Actually, I have saw Elvis Presley. No. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. It still is. You saw the king. Blue suede shoes. As singer and actor, the entire production was astonishing. And for the opera, The Kaiser of Atlantis, how would you describe your role of the emperor? Well, you know, in I mean, the opera itself was written as a not-so-thinly-veiled critique of an authoritarian regime, the Nazi regime that was in charge uh, during the Holocaust. I mean, it wasn't he wasn't real subtle, you know, and and my character is Emperor Überall, which is you know the king overall, right? He's the king of he, he controls everything, and he's an authoritarian. And my character really is. I mean, we discover through the course of the show that it's the the, the fears that any oppressed group has about their oppressor are realized through the course of this show. When you realize that, you know, it's not that this man is fighting for some ideology or for his people. His ideology is that he finds the human race itself to be unworthy of existence. And his, his plan all along is to wipe them off the face of the earth and, and to release existence from the torture of the human condition. playing Sweeney Todd or like they said Joseph Desrochers there's a lot of ways to play monsters quote unquote and there's two general ways of telling that story you can either have someone who appears to be a monster and you expose their humanity through the course or you have somebody that's that's uh, a human and you you expose their monstrosity throughout the course of your storytelling Uberall is truly a sociopath and a psychopath and so that's a, a, a different way of telling the story because it's really hard to connect with that. You know, it's, it's not that he lacks humanity, it's that he, he encapsulates sort of the worst aspects of the human organism. And so it's like, when, you, when you're playing Joseph, you know, you, the first thing you see with Joseph is, is the rape and the murder. And then we sort of, you know, we sort of get to know him as a person and you sort of understand the why of why he is who he is. With Sweeney Todd, it's the same way. You know, you, 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 you're presented with this story and then through the course of the thing, you see you, the, the narrative unfold that created him. And with, with Uberall, it's which, what you're doing at, through the course of the show is, is, is not exposing that, 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 the aspects of humanity that we can all say, oh, that's, you know, that's, that understands why. There is no why. There is no why. It, that's the scariest thing about this character is that it, it, 
at the end of the show, you actually discover that it's not that he's he's there to rid the earth of humanity. And that for me is is the scariest part about this character. And uh, it's 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 absolutely terrifying to imagine someone with that kind of animus. In in humanity. Now the backstory of this opera is horrid as the composer was imprisoned in one Nazi concentration camp when he wrote it and sent to die in another because he wrote it. Is there redemption in this story? You know, I don't know. You know, it, it doesn't seem so for, for Uberall, no. Because when you have these, these dictators, these authoritarians, they meet their end in usually one of two ways, either begging for their lives or, or screaming, you know, or cursing their, their con conquerors uh, straight to the grave. In this story, Uberall doesn't, he doesn't have a, a moment of like, oh, I was wrong, or, oh, I now see the monstrosity of what I've been doing, the atrocity that I've been committing. He doesn't have that moment. He goes to, he goes to the grave, with basically a middle finger to humanity and to death. He doesn't redeem himself. I mean, that's what's terrifying about these kinds of characters, not even, not even in just storytelling, but in, in life and in, in, in reality, that sometimes there are these people who are divested of those elements of humanity that we look at as the most, you know, compassion and, 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 and kindness and all those things. That's what's so scary about this guy. So what is the ultimate message of the Kaiser of Atlantis? I think it's, I mean, it's a, you look, I mean, when you look at the guys that wrote, the, that wrote this opera, uh, it wouldn't be so beyond them to imagine that the, their oppressors weren't just trying to rid the world of, of them, but of everyone, because they're, they're, I keep using this word monstrosity, but it's just so, it's so distilled and so scary that to them, you know, they really, you know, they, they were in the moment in history. We have the benefit of looking back and knowing the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story, but they predicted it pretty well. And so I think, you know, the, the it really is a warning that, that when you empower individuals that are so disordered as Uberall is, you run the risk of spreading that disorder, not only to people in the government, but to the entire society. And for me, that's what, that is the lesson of De Kaiser von Atlantis. When you have this confluence, a fundamentally disordered individual with unlimited executive power, which you, what you run the risk of is something horrible and just unimaginable befalling a society, which is what happens in the Kaiser von Atlantis. And that the, that the recovery from such a journey is long and, and, and daunting indeed. Mike, you created a variety show called Opera to Opry, yeah. Love, Liquor and the Lord. Yes. <laughs> Played at the Shakespeare Tavern and that show drew on similarities between opera and country music. What can you tell us about the show you are developing for this big tent concert series? Well, I can tell you as, you know, as someone who, I had a lot of misconceptions about what opera was and who opera was for and all that before I, before I discovered the art form in college. So it took me a long time to really understand, you know, what, what all this opera stuff was about. Cause I grew up playing country music and bluegrass and all that stuff, like a lot of people who sing opera for a living or who are in the opera business. I wasn't five years old in Cut and Shoot, Texas, in our trailer, dreaming of one day being Pavarotti. I didn't know who Pavarotti was, so I got to high school, you know? So for me, I, was, I wanted to be Chris Christopherson or Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash. And so I think it's, a, it's the case for a lot of people in our business that they that, they, that their entry point to music was something other than opera and they came to opera later. But essentially, all of these musical forms, these art forms, these ways of expressing or storytelling are, are really, it's universal, the, 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 the impulse and the, 
the storytelling element is, is, is present in all music. And opera is sort of like the technicolor thing, but like I said, with the opera to opera show, you know, you know, Opry can do what opera does in three and a half hours in three and a half minutes. Verismo opera was meant to tell the real story, the, the real, a real slice of life, you know, a real insight into the lives of real people. Well, there's, I mean, for me, there are a few other forms of musical expression than country music that really speak to that particular ethos, you know, telling the stories of real people. That's what country music does. And so this crossroads thing, I, I know that there are people in our business who, who have other forms of expression that don't necessarily mean standing on stage in a fancy costume and screaming to 4,000 people. Sometimes they, they also have other ways of expressing themselves. And I really wanted to explore that. And I really wanted people to see that in our audience to know that you know, we're more than just these, these sort of stereotypes that have been so prevalent about our art form. We, are, we, we, we love the same music, we do the same thing and we live the same lives as people in our audience do. And so this for me was a great way to sort of show the incredible diversity that's present in our business. So you'll, you're gonna see not only just, you know, like for me and, and Megan, we're gonna do some country music and some bluegrass tunes, but we have folks doing jazz, we have folks doing blues, R&B, uh, pop music and folk songs and all this stuff. So there's just a, a tremendous amount of expressive ability in this community that I, I, I feel that's not always shown to our audience. And I think this is a great way to sort of see the other side of uh, our creative folks. I think that sounds great. And I should add, Megan is Megan Marino, who is your wife. Yes. Well, Reggie spoke about some of the health and safety concerns, which are foremost in mind now. And I know the Atlanta Opera has taken this into tremendous consideration. That's why you're performing in an outdoor tent socially distanced. I'm curious what it has meant in terms of your rehearsals. Well, we have to wear, I mean, I, I'll, no, go I'll for it. jump in, but like, but I know Reggie and I were definitely <laughs> struggling with the same thing, which is, you know, we have these plastic boxes on stage that sort of separate us all, but we play inside and outside of the boxes. And while we were rehearsing in the, in the, in the rehearsal hall and even outside, if we're outside of those boxes, we're wearing a mask to sing all the time. And, and that's, that's a very, you know, that's, that's a new thing for us, you know, to have something normally, you know, you go to a fit and you're like, please don't put too much uh, tension around my neck. So I can, you know. And now we have these things that like, not only cut off like a, a little bit of the resonance and the, and the way we, the way it feels to sing, but it also cuts off like half of our storytelling monitor or our, our our storytelling tool which is our face you know you can only see our eyes and so it, it really does present a, a challenge as a storyteller you know that you don't want to like overdo it you don't want to go crazy you still want it to be real and you have to recognize the fact that we're all in these masks and 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 that's what's great about Atlanta they're not they're not sidestepping and pretending that this that this pandemic isn't happening you know, the pandemic is very much present in both productions. You're going, you're going to see, I mean, that's, that's the essence of Verismo. When you watch these shows, you're going to see not only the struggle of performers performing during the time of pandemic, but you're going to see some of your own struggles as, as a person that's enduring this time. So you, you singers, you and all of the rest of the singers who will perform in these two operas, will be masked for the performance? Well, we're not masked for the entirety of the performance. We have these, how do you explain, like the cubes, or if you will, that have a plastic sort of covering. So when we're in those, it's okay. Or if we're in the center of the stage and there's at least 15 feet around us where no one's around, it's okay. But when you have interactions with other people, then you have to remember, oh, my mask. <laughs> Which, you know, again, you can also, you know, you make a part of the staging, but also it's a part of real life. I mean, I know I'm not the only one that's jumped out of my car to go into the gas station and was like, oh, got to get my mask. And so it's kind of <laughs> the same thing. Sometimes your character 
steps out of the cube and you're like, oh, another person, mask. <laughs> but no, there will be some, some singing without said mask, but you better believe we're taking every safety precaution imaginable to make sure that not only we're safe, but that the audience is safe as well. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety for, I mean, for, for us and the audience. And I think if we were to ignore that anxiety and try to pretend that this is a pre-corona time and that we're trying to give people back something that they feel like they quote unquote lost, I think that's a real mistake. I think acknowledging the fact that we have to use these things, that these things are now part of our society and part of our life. And, you know, I know that when I, when I watch television now and I watch a, a, a show that's from before the pandemic and people are hugging up on each other and, and like kissing and <laughs> man, I, my skin starts to crawl. I'm like, Gah! so I, I think if I were to see that as an audience member, it would make me super uncomfortable. It might take me out of the, the moment. And so I, I think it's important that we acknowledge that these things are part of our life now. Two illustrious baritones with the Atlanta Opera. Michael May stars in the final performance of The Kaiser of Atlantis on Saturday evening. Reggie Smith will perform in Pagliacci tonight and Sunday evening. This Sunday afternoon, the Atlanta Opera will present Crossroads, a variety show based on Michael May's Opera to Opry concert. More information can be found on the website atlantaopera.org. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Atlanta singer-songwriter Mike Kinnebrew is known for the relatability of his lyrics and the honesty of his storytelling. He joined me in September ahead of the release of his album, One Way to Find Out. We discussed Mike's songwriting process and the risks that go with being a musician. With a music career and, and trying to pursue one, there's no telling if, uh, if anyone's gonna be interested in the art that you create, um, where it's gonna take you. There's no telling when you sit down to try to create something, if you will beat your head against the wall for two hours or if song will come like, like clockwork, like magic. So with, with so many things, and especially with music, there's only one way to find out. The relatability of your lyrics is central to all of your songs. Would you walk us through your songwriting process? <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I used to I used to sit down with a laptop or, or or some kind of a device if I needed to look up a rhyme or or, or read some uh, literature, or some poetry, and get it quick at my fingertips, but you're only a, a hand's breadth away from social media and your email and all these other things. And so the last year and all the songs on this album, I sat out on my porch with a journal and a cup of coffee and sometimes a cigar and, and no resources other than what was already in my head uh, to write. So I, I typically try to get a, a melody first and some, so that I have an idea of, of what I'll be trying to fit words inside, you know, a, a cadence or a phrasing. And, and then once I have that, I set the guitar down and, and put pen to paper. Uh, I don't usually set out to say, I want to write a song about this or about that. Um, I don't really know what the song is about until the first couple lines come. And then I wonder what in the world I'm talking about. And, and I, I, I wonder if it's that way for people who write books uh, who write novels, uh, who write poems. If you start talking before you know what you're saying. Um, but for me, that's how it is. Uh, the forming of the melody involves a lot of singing gibberish and words that aren't even really words, um, just as I'm trying to, trying to come up with a melody that, that I like. Uh, I grew up listening to what my parents listened to and uh, riding around in the station wagon, you just, you, you listened to what was on the radio and my dad taught me to play the guitar. So then I, I learned, the first songs I learned were, were the songs that he, he taught me by the Beatles and, and Elvis and the Monkees and uh, people like that. 
but I always loved songwriters that 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 seem to be saying something uh, really meaningful, and, and I guess that's a relative uh, term because it's meaningful to that's in the eye of the beholder. But so I fell in love with James Taylor and Jackson Brown, and and later on Tom Petty, and and these days it's singer songwriters like Ben Rector and uh, Dave Barnes and uh, uh, the Indigo Girls have been 25 year influences on me um, coming out of Atlanta, coming out of Eddie's Attic like I have. Singer songwriter Mike Kennebrew. His album, One Way to Find Out, is available to stream on Spotify. You've been listening to City Lights our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., our guest will be pianist Lara Downs. She's hosting a new video series for NPR Music called Amplify with Lara Downs, where she engages visionary black musicians on various subjects confronting them today. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would just so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And please do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Have a good, safe weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.